Hello and welcome to another episode of the CG Garage. This is episode number 398 featuring Jinko Goto, who is a producer. You know, I love producers uh, and uh, all the amazing work she's done in animation. She is absolutely incredible. I met her at THU. Uh, really fun to talk to her. She has had a very interesting career, a very interesting path to where, uh, how, you know, in terms of how she got to where she is now. Uh, again, this was one of my THU ones. Uh, we recorded at outside. It was really nice. I don't really record podcasts outside, so that's kind of fun. Uh, but yeah, it was a lot of fun uh, talking to her and uh, being able to share some of her stories. But uh, definitely uh, check it out on YouTube if you guys want to see you know, a little bit of a taste of what THU is like. Uh, Kristen, what did you think of, uh, of Jinka? Yeah, well, uh, she has an incredible journey just of how she came to Hollywood, um, kind of after being inspired by Lady and the Tramp and Astro Boy, um, also to learning computer programming. Um, she then started her own production company, I believe at 27, so super young, um, mm-hmm. and then realized she wanted to shift more into the film industry. Um, and just her producing credits alone include Claw, uh, sorry, Klaus, uh, the Lego Movie Two, second part, Little Prince, Illusionist Nine, and then the Oscar-winning Finding Nemo, and and several of those are already Oscar-nominated films. So right. amazing work! Um, and then she just gives some good insight just how to figure out your path to your dream, but you also have to take calculated risks. Um, plot it out, give yourself options, be disciplined. Um, so that was just a great. It's not just like oh, go for your dream. It's like you know, work it out. Um, so that was really cool. And then you guys also discussed just how technology has changed industry and um, the rise of documentary animation. So we get a lot of info in this podcast. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's really cool. And, you know, she's a very important uh, person, especially there's a there's a com- community called uh, uh, Women in Animation, and mm-hmm. she's a, a big part of that. Uh, and so there's a link. Uh, if you want to know more about that, uh, there's a link on the podcast page. So definitely check that out. Uh, but it was, yeah, it was really great having her on and being able to to do all those things uh, and to find out all that information from her. Uh, great. Uh, we've got a, a couple of announcements uh, just to, to, guys, to let you guys know. Uh, if you go to chaos.com, you will see that V-Ray 6 uh, is out for almost all of our products. Uh, SketchUp, Rhino, Cinema 4D, 3DS Max, Maya, uh, uh, Houdini, and the others are coming very shortly. Uh, but yeah, very exciting stuff. And uh, uh, so go definitely go check us out. Lots of new features uh, in all of those products. So uh, really cool to have that. Uh, we have a few events coming up. Kristen, what's going on? Yeah, so you can find these out at chaos.com slash events. The first one coming up is October 26th. That is a free webinar. Um, and you can watch to learn more about V-Ray 6 for Cinema 4D. And then October 31st, which is uh, Halloween, uh, we have another free webinar, which is V-Ray 6 for Rhino. And then November 3rd through 5th, it's an actual live event, which is for SketchUp at China 3D Design Summit. So you can meet Chaos and Inscape there and um, probably have a booth. So you can find more about <laughs> these at chaos.com slash events. Perfect. That's great. Uh, okay. And if people want to know more about the podcast, Kristen, where can they go? You can go to facebook.com slash cggaragepodcast or chaos.com slash cggarage. And if you'd like to watch us, go to youtube.com slash chaosgrouptv. Perfect. And if you guys have any ideas or comments or anything you want to communicate with us about the podcast, you can always email us labs at chaos.com. Don't forget to leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts and review would be also welcome. And make sure to share us with all your friends and family. (laughs) But for now, please enjoy episode number 398 with Jinko Goto. 
Welcome to another CG Garage Where the Chaos Group talks You'll know it's over when the last bucket drops We're gonna fire off rays In high dynamic range We know that ambient occlusion is passe Global illumination won't lead you astray And while image-based lighting is really swell you need to make sure everything has for now. It's amazing how small this equipment has become, right? I know, I know. And I used Not to the come, days to carry, you know, I used carry to come, cases, I right? used to come with this big, and, and I did audio only before. Yeah. And I came with, like, these big microphones. Yeah, big and cases, thing, I know. And now I'm like, my yeah, entire like, audio video is in the like, capsule. Like that's so <laughs> cool. That is so cool. That's so cool. So I'm pretty happy about that. Okay. Uh, so I don't know if you listened to any of the previous podcasts. I haven't yet, sorry. That's okay. That's okay. I will. It's very casual. So, I will. Uh, so this is good. So uh, one of the things I like to ask is like, obviously, you know, I've, I've read a little bit about how you, you know, where, where you are now, but I want to know how you got there. What was that journey that you took? Okay. Well, you got to listen to my talk tomorrow. Uh, yes, I will. But this is an audience that may not sure. have the opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so what, what is the thing that sort of inspired you to do, uh, to get into, you know, being, working in animation, that kind of stuff? Well, it, it all started when I was um, very little. Okay. The first film I ever saw yeah. was Lady in the Tramp. Right. So that had a huge influence. Right. Um, and then shortly after, I met um, Osamu Tezawa, uh -huh. the creator of Astro Boy. Oh, right. So I got to go to his animation studio in Japan. Uh-huh. And um, he showed me himself and his background paintings. And, you know, when you're a little kid and you see this, it's magic. Yeah. Maybe it's not for every kid, but for me, it was truly magic. Yeah. So um, I said to my dad, when I grow up, this is what I want to do. Uh -huh. And he said, well, because Galsan was a medical doctor before that. Oh, right. <laughs> so that kind of like, you know, instilled in me um, two thoughts, right? Here's what I want to do, but you got to do that before. Right. Yeah. So um, then um, we immigrated to the U.S. Okay. So this all happened in Japan. Right. And so when I got here to the U.S., obviously I didn't speak a word of English. Right. And so, um, you know, you have to find ways to do well in school. Well, what year was this? How old were you? I was eight years old. Eight this years. was in 1967. Okay. So it's a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, sorry, 1966. Right. And so... Um, yeah, so I was good in math, I was good in science, I was good in, with music. Um, and so you kind of forget about all the things you love as a little child, mm -hmm. even though um, we used to go and watch movies a couple times a year. Sure. So I ended up in um, engineering school. Okay. And I studied applied math. And I knew I didn't want to be an engineer, but, you know, my dad was like, okay, one of you should be a doctor and another one should be a lawyer. If not, you guys should be, a, someone should be a professor. I mean, it was very, very, you know, traditional immigrant story right. where the parents really want the kids to do better. Right. And that's getting the best education and, and picking a profession that's a very stable profession. Right. right. But I knew I didn't want to be an engineer, but um, in the junior year, um, I took a class called Introduction to Computer Graphics. Uh -huh. So that began, oh, 
you know, kind of connecting the dots. Right. And so it made me visualize that maybe there is a way I can do animation from the technical standpoint, you know, uh-huh. and eventually I'll get into the artistic side. And so I kind of concocted this plan, which was, okay, I got to be a real expert at this. And so um, I went and saw a professor that was doing this kind of research. And so I thought, um, I went and found him, called him up and, and said, I want to work for you. And he said, I lean up. I've got a job for a computer programmer. And, you know, can you code in C? I said, yeah, I can code in C. Okay. So I got a job. Okay. And so I was working at the medical school, uh, and this was after I graduated from engineering school. And he said, well, um, you know, now you're a staff at Columbia, you know, you could really go anywhere for grad school without paying tuition. So I thought, oh, great. I'll apply to film school. And I got in. Uh And um, so that was the beginning of my film journey Uh as a student. But, you know, when I got out way back then, this was in 1982. Okay. Really, the work being, you know, coming out of film school with, with an MFA meant, you know, you're going to drive a taxi or you're going to be a waitress or you get a job as a PA, you know. Uh-huh. And um, Mila Schwarman was running the film program at Columbia. So yeah. um, I got invited to go on set. And then I met a set PA. And I said, how long have you been doing this? It's like, about four years. And I'm like, oh, God, I can't be doing this for four years, you know? It's a long way up the ladder to be a producer. Uh-huh. So I thought, no, this isn't for me. And so I was like, okay, well, what's another way, you know? And I thought, well, maybe I apply a job as a computer programmer, and somehow I'll figure out a way. And so I applied a job. And this was with Northrop, you know, back then aerospace, everybody in aerospace was doing, um, was starting to do CG. Right, right. And, you know, if you knew how to code in C, it's pretty easy to get a job. So yeah. got a job at Northrop and... Um, was this in Los Angeles or yeah, the West in, Coast? Yeah, yeah. In, in, uh, back in L.A. Yeah. And um, I was like, I just can't do this, you know. Yeah. So I called the recruiter. The recruiter was very angry. But I said, it's better to say no now than to start a job and then quit. Right. So um, I didn't take that job. Okay. Um, as part of my thesis film to graduate um, from film school, um, we had to do a film. And so um, I decided I wanted to do something different than animation and decided I'll do some documentary work. Mm-hmm. And so, um, at the time, my dad was teaching in um, in, in um, Shanghai, and so um, the Cultural Revolution was just finishing up, right? And so I said, I, I want to go to um, China and shoot a doc about young people. So I spent the summer of um, 1981 uh, shooting a documentary about um, two families, because over 13 million people were denied higher education during the Cultural Revolution. And the revolution had just ended, so um, 
people that were denied um, higher education were finally being able to get higher education. So whether you were in your teens, or late teens, or in your 30s, they all got to go back right. and get education. So um, I um, had two families that I spent the summer with, really trying to understand. And one was a commune family, and the other one was a factory working com uh, family, mm -hmm. both with different circumstances of what happened in the revolution. So I shot this dog and, um, you know, put it through the film festival circus and it won a bunch of awards. And um, luckily I got interviewed by Japanese media because mm -hmm. my dad was like, okay, you got a dog out now, you got to get coverage. Right. So, um, so getting that coverage allowed, you know, basically a situation where um, people read it and I talk about computer graphics and not just dog, but you know, here's my dream. This is what I want to do. And so I got a call from an ad agency in Japan and they were getting ready for the 1985 expo. Okay. And they were the primary agency, um, doing all the creative work and they're very, very clever because back then CG didn't really exist in Japan, very little did, but it was starting to get pretty popular in the U.S., mostly on the commercial side. Right. So there are companies like Bobby Abel Associates, there yep. was Digital Production, you know, there was a small group of them. Yep. And so um, then to the ad agency um, basically um, was commissioning these companies to do these films for the various pavilions, mostly electronic pavilions. And so by doing that, you know, they can show off computer graphics, even though it wasn't their computers doing this, but it kind of painted that picture, right? Sure. And so when they found out that I actually knew about this field, they hired me nice. as an agency producer. As a, okay. So I got a job. As a producer? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Which is different than programming or... Yeah. Yeah. It's exactly what I wanted to do. Right. But just, you know, wasn't working animation, but it was a foot in the door. Right. So I did that and, um, you know, got to meet a lot of great people and um, networked and opened a lot of doors for me. And then I had a sponsor from then to... Um, that was a managing director that really believed in me. And he said, you know, you should start your own production company and I'm going to get you someone to fund that. Right. So that happened in, um, when I was like 27 years old and I'm like, okay, I guess this all kind of makes sense, you know, uh -huh. but little do you know that, you know, I don't have skills to run a company or build a company, but, um, you know, the people that funded me were, were very, very successful, um, entertainment conglomerate and in Japan. So they said, you know, you got to set your goals, et cetera. And I said, and they said, I'm going to give you $40,000 to start this company. Okay. And so I set a goal that I had to generate $2 million in revenues within the first three years. Okay. So remember, this is back in you yeah. know, late 80s. So that's a lot of that's money. That's a lot to, of money. Yeah. Today's not a lot of money. Yeah. But, um, well, for a startup also. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, you know, what I was good at was really innovating ideas 
But what I wasn't really good at was building a company or running a company, you know. Okay. So I did that, and, um, you know, um, I got involved in a lot of computer graphics stuff that we were doing now for other um, types of uh, large format events. Right. And back then in Japan, people were doing various types of, it wasn't an expo, but people were doing um, large format films for different types of events. And then I helped out on some of the commercials. Um, but, you know, I wanted to just keep innovating. So one of the things I came up with was back then MTV was huge, right? Mm-hmm. And so I got to know the people at Propaganda Films. And um, what I did was I pitched a lot of the directors to um, direct Japanese commercials. Right. So I was probably the very first person um, to start producing commercials with um, iconic music video directors in Japan. So I did that. That was exciting for a while. But then, you know, this just kind of worse then because it's like you're nothing against the service industry. Um, but, you know, I want to make movies. I hear you. And so um, that's, there was one summer when I was shooting a big campaign with Sanyo and we had Bon Jovi and... Um, and we're in New York, some, uh, New York City for that summer, and it was really hot and humid, and we'd been working like six to eight weeks, you know. Right. And then I remember walking by uh, Radio um, City, uh, Radio Music Center, uh, the Radio um, Music, what am I going to say? Radio City Music Hall. Yeah. And there was this big marquee, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? <laughs> uh-huh. So, of course, I go oh, course. watch this thing, and I'm like, it reminded me of my days of... Um, Lady and Trump, I'm like going, what the hell am I doing sitting here making commercials, you know? Uh-huh. And so I just promised myself I got to figure out how to do that because otherwise, you know, my life is just going to go on making commercials. So a few years later, by hook or crook, um, I got um, a job as the CG producer on Space Jam. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And that was super exciting to me because it was like, okay, here's a, here's a lot of the people that worked on Who Framed Roger Rabbit right. now doing Space Jam, and we've moved away from doing optical work, and now we're going to the digital world, right? Yeah, yeah. So these guys that are like a, won an Oscar for you know um, all the optical work at ILM um, at Jones, you know, had come over to Cinecide, which at the time was owned by Kodak, yeah, and they had come up with the technology of um, the first digital um, printer. Yeah. And they're also the ones that came up the first digit, one of the first um, companies that came up with digital compositing. Mm-hmm. So I worked for them as a CGI producer. And um, that was like, you know, groundbreaking in many ways. I mean, Toy Story was coming out just while we were in production. But um, that was all CG where this was like, you know, live action plates and CG backgrounds, right? Yeah. And so it was, um, then we had, you know, um, animated characters with live action. So it was far more exciting than doing all of it in the computer. Yeah, and the compositing was more. Yeah. yeah. So that happened and then um, <laughs> Disney feature animation at the time was building their um, digital studio to do dinosaur. Right. So um, 
shortly before I finished Space Jam, I got a call from Disney and I also got a call from Digital Domain. DD at the time was going to do Avatar. Right. The first time. The first time around. <laughs> the first time around. So I got two job you know, offers, but, uh -huh. um, and I was super excited to go work on Avatar because of Titanic. But then I kind of felt like, is this really going to happen? And I kind of waited. And then they said, you know, we have this other big VFX movie that's in trouble called Dante's Peak. Yeah. And meanwhile, Disney's like, are you coming or not coming? And right. so I decided to go to Disney. Okay. And I ended up being the digital production manager on Diamond Store right. and helped build the digital um, production studio at Disney. And then eventually got promoted to be director of digital production for the entire studio. Uh-huh. But... I was, I was like doing administrative work at that point, and I was like, I'm just not really happy because, again, I didn't come to Disney to be an administrator. I came to want to produce movies. Right. Um, so I left. Okay. And um, a couple months later, I got a job at Pixar. Okay. And um, I was hired as the associate producer on Finding Nemo. Oh, nice. Yeah. Nice. So that was, a, that was really the, you know, the big journey, you know, right. up till basically 2003. And when we finished Nemo, um, they said, you know, stay, you know, we'll have another movie for you in a while. But meanwhile, you know, there's this administrative job you can do. <laughs> yeah. Because they wanted to retool the pipeline. Sure. And I think, you know, in those days, you know, if you had both an engineering background and, and production background, you know, it was easy to like pigeonhole you into these kind of jobs, right? Right. I was like, I don't want to be sitting here overseeing how we were going to retool the pipeline. Right. And so I left. Yeah. And that was 2003. And, you know, ever since then, you know, I've kind of traveled the globe and worked on pet projects. I've gone in and rescued projects and right. done a potpourri of stuff. But let's talk about that role of producer like what there's there are many different types of producers and mm -hmm. there are many different things so on a in a broad sense of things what do you what do you what do you think a producer does like what is the producer's responsibility well so there's the creative component of it right yeah and then there's the fiscal component of it mm -hmm. um and then there's also you know management component of it like so for me yeah <laughs> yeah the logistics um I mean, for me, what's really important is, you know, really to creatively partner with the director mm -hmm. uh, and make sure that, you know, your vision and, or their vision and your vision really um, connect. Right. Because ultimately, um, you know, you have to be that um, director's partner, creative right. partner to be a filmmaker. And, and if you don't, if you, if you don't have that, you don't have the fundamental basis, right? Right. And so that to me is the most important thing right. um, for a producer. And because logistically, um, you know, you hire a production team yeah. to handle that. But, um, you know, you've got to set that tone of how you want to manage things. And, you know, a lot has to do with that partnership with, that you have with that director. Sure. And then, you know, there's also, you know, if you go independent, you've got to go raise money. And, um, and then you're going to manage the people that give you the money, whether it's a studio or, um, 
or financier. Sure. And so um, you're always balancing that and making sure that you're protecting the creative vision of the film. At the same time, you've got to manage expectations, right? Right. So, um, you know, I spent a lot of time managing those expectations um, so that, um, you know, we're left alone to make the movie we want to make. Right. And then you get involved in marketing and publicity. Um, and, and also the other important component for me is making sure that I'm there selecting the, the leadership of the crew. Yeah. Because that leadership is really going to be, you know, your front line. Right. That's going to go hire the crew and, and maintain the, the creative integrity and also, you know, how you want to run, run the production. Yeah. So you want to find people with like minds with the same values, but at the same time, what's always important to me is that, um, you know, we want to innovate the medium. Sure. So I'm always pushing to um, innovate that medium through storytelling, through visual storytelling. So you want to bring people that can actually, you know, um, spearhead that. Um, otherwise, you know, everything starts to look the same and feel the same and nothing, nothing wrong with that. But right. I think, you know, the beauty of animation is that we're a visual medium where, you know, you can do anything. Right. And so that's what's always been magical about animation for me. And that's why, you know, I love animation. Like I, you know, the first film I saw, Lady and Trump. Right. Who would have thought, you know, I've always loved dogs since I was a little kid. So, but to watch, you know, talking dogs in the setting, I mean, that's like magic as a kid. Of course. Yeah. Well, I think it's, I think it's great. And I think it's good that you're bringing magic to little kids yeah. yourself. But what I think is kind of unique, especially from, you know, a uh, producer's point of view, not very few producers I know, know how to program and see <laughs> and have computer graphics backgrounds. And end up in the on the production side of things. I mean, mm -hmm. that generally ends up being either in the in the technical side of things, or or, or you know, things, shader writers or, mm -hmm. or programmers. So it's interesting that you went into production. Like, what did you think about? Like, how how did how did how did that knowledge influence or help your 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 knowledge of, of being a producer? I think you know, early on, in in CG, you have to be pretty technical. And yeah. And wherever you stood, you know. Sure. And and especially, in, you know, a lot of production people didn't understand this. So, right. like working at Disney on Dinosaur, um, you know, my position was really really bridging the gap between the developers that would write code um, and the production people that were monitoring, you know. Sure. Because it's, you you've got to help them how to monitor that. It's like, it's like, how do you monitor R&D, right? right? It's not like you can measure R&D. Right. And you've got to create that space so that um, these developers can actually develop, right? Right. It's not like, you know, you're measuring how many lines of code did you write, you know, or how many errors did you get, you know? It's not, that's not how you do things, you know? Yeah. Because I think, you know, programming is just as creative as, you know, drawing, right? Sure. So, um, I think, you know, having that technical background and being able to understand, even though I can't write a shader, sure. 
Um, but you know, we were building the first first system, the muscle and skin system. Right. You know, we're building the fundamentals of you know what exists today yep. um, in the pipeline, and um, you know, having that technical understanding allows you to empathize with both the code writers and the production people. Right. And I think you know when you're when you're when you're creating or you're innovating, empathy is very, very important as a, as a leader. Right. Because without empathy, you know, I don't know how to create. Right. So um, I think, you know, probably having to do with the fact that I was an immigrant, having to come into a foreign place, didn't speak the language, and having to figure out how to adapt in that, into that, I think, you know, gave me some skills about how it also be a good bridge between right. two different worlds or two different cultures. So, um, you know, and ever since I was a kid, I, I mean, I like to make things, but right. just not me making, but collectively making things. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's why I want to do production rather than be a code writer. Yeah. But code, I mean, you could be making code. <laughs> yes, I could be making code. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I could have ran, a, you know, I guess um, a programming department, but that's not what I wanted to do. Right. I mean, how obviously, you know, you talked about your, you know, your, your father's influence mm -hmm. on you and how he wanted to, like, know you have to follow these mm -hmm. steps. But you sort of did it, but did it anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, how, how, how did you, I mean, how did that feel about the, the pressure and overcoming that? And how would you, how would you, what would you recommend to people who say, you know, follow your dreams or do what you need? Well, to I do? think, you know, I think, you know, you, I think you have to have discipline. Okay. You know, yes, we all have dreams, but you'll have you'll have to kind of figure out what that path is to that dream. Sure. And I think you have to become. I think you have to be responsible. You know, and yes, you got to take calculated risk. And yes, I've said no to jobs, but you know, you kind of plot it out. And so here's your plan A. Here's your plan B. You know. Right. And here's the fallback position. I mean, you have to kind of work that through and that and do that exercise and you know talk to your network of you know whether it's mentors or sponsors or your colleagues you know you got to do a lot of you know a lot of uh, soul searching and making sure that you know look life is a risk and whatever you do is there's a risk involved sure. right but I think you know you kind of plot it through and and if you believe in it we all figure out a way to do this. And, um, you know, I think it's really having grit. Right. Right. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's an interesting thing to think about, like, you know, how is this going to affect uh, uh, people's lives? Because I think a lot of people right now are just follow your dreams attitude. But I think that idea of having, having some discipline allows you to sort of mm -hmm. think about where you're going to go. Okay, now also you, you you've also went to film school, right? So yeah. how did how did film school influence obviously your knowledge of filmmaking and 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 obviously had a, a knowledge there, but how did it work with with that discipline and how? You so it was it? interesting because um, you know, I was at the um, Columbia Film Program, mm -hmm. where the film program at that point was um, a lot of analysis, a lot of criticism, work, 
and there were experimental films being made. And when Milos Forman took over the, um, the school, they started really focusing on the craft of screenwriting and directing. Mm -hmm. But the, um, the older faculty that had been there for a long time really focused on criticism and analysis. Mm -hmm. And what was interesting for me was taking, especially the analysis class, classes, because it, you dissected these great movies. Yeah. And so actually my engineering schooling, which is about, you know, also problem solving and dissecting. Right. So I felt like I had an advantage over other, other kids that, other students that came from mostly, you know, from humanities, you know? Sure. Um, because I think in engineering school, you're disciplined to be critical thinkers and, and be, you know, be able to problem solve and right. analyze, analyze the situation you're looking at. Sure. So I felt like, you know, I had best of both worlds, you know? Because yep. now I was trying, you know, I was learning how to take, take good, great films apart. Um, that doesn't mean that you become a great filmmaker by doing that, but I think it's important to know what makes great films. Right. So, um, you know, I really, really enjoy that. Sure, sure, sure. Now, obviously, you have, you know, you have a deep knowledge of film, film school, et cetera, but how does, how does animation fit in that? How do you find animation to be something? A genre of film or even just a, as, a, as, a, as a method of making films? Yeah, so I'm, first of all, I'm going to correct. Animation isn't a genre, it's a medium. It's a medium, that's correct. It's a medium, <laughs> and um, the process is different because, um, you know, a live-action film, you start with a script. On an animated film, you have to have a good story, sure. whether that's on a script form or, or a treatment form, but it's also a visual medium. And you have to remember, on an anime movie, you're creating every single frame, yep. right? So you got to create the world, and you got to create these characters, and and you also have to ask the question: Why are we animating this movie? Because if you if you can't answer that question, then go shoot it, right? Because it probably isn't an animated movie, right? Yeah. So I think the difference is that, you know, you've, you've got to ask that question first. And then our process is very different because in live action, you know, you go shoot, then you spend your time in editorial. Right. When with animation, everything is centered around editorial. So the editor is involved from literally the first, first day you start the storyboard. Right. Because you're making the movie in editorial. Right. And it's a very iterative process. And also, um, somewhat a linear process because you, you have steps. Right. Um, so it's, I think it's a very different form of filmmaking. Yeah, I think, I think it is. I think it's interesting and good perspective to like think about it in editorial. Mm -hmm. Like you're, the movie is being made from the end forward almost. Yeah. So it's also interesting. What do you think has changed? And, you know, let, let's start with it, like just a, the idea of technology and how long things take, mm -hmm. you know, from, from those early days when you were working, mm -hmm. you know, in, in, in Japan doing commercials all the way to today. Like what has changed the, in the process of doing animation? Well, first of all, the advancement in technology is sure. huge, right? Right. You know, I remember working on the Expo 85, Hitachi Pavilion's film. You know, you wait, you know, 24, 36 six hours for a single frame of render. Right. Now, you know, you can render in real time. Sure. So that's a huge change. Right. 
um, you know, when I started, um, there was no Avid. So, you know, editing meant, you know, you had film strips. Right. You know, same thing with sound, you know. Yep. So technology has definitely advanced filmmaking, especially in the last, um, you know, 20 years. Right. Which, which I think is, you know, allowed more iteration um, and and I think it, it's changed the creative process, I think, okay. you know, because you're, you can iterate faster. So I think your creative process changes. Whereas um, the days when you have to do optical printing, for example, I mean, you have to be pretty decisive, right? You, because once you run through that optical printer, you're done. Yep. Very different from digital compositing. Right, right. Where you don't like something, you know, you hit done do or do a new version of it, right? Right. So I think the discipline and the process has changed. And, um, you know, and the music video had a big influence in how people shoot. Yeah. And, you know, when you saw people like David Fincher go out and shoot live action, you know, I remember talking to um, David's, one of his, David's editors, he said, because David came from music video, right. you know, his shooting ratio was just out of control. Right. And the editor said it, it was just painful for them. Right. Because he didn't come from the world of film. Right. Where, you know, you thought about what your shooting ratio was, you right. know? Not him, you know? <laughs> Comes from that whole different world where shoot as much as footage you want, you want and then we'll go figure this out. Yep. So I think, you know, technology has such a big influence into how we work. Sure. And how we work also influences technology, what needs to, you know, what we want technology to do. Yeah. And I think, you know, originally it started more, I think, you know, I think in the 80, I would say probably in the late 80s to probably the late 90s, you know, um, we were limited to what we could do digitally. Sure. And now, I mean, you can do anything digitally. You, you can. And the, the, my, my question is, like, if you think back in the 80s, our thoughts is like, how, what do I need to do to make this faster? Right? Mm -hmm. And that was the problem we wanted to solve. Yeah. So what is the problem we want to solve today? <laughs> well, the problem that I would like to solve today is that, you know, I want to give an opportunity for more filmmakers to make um, content. Okay. So how do you reduce that price point? Right. How do you reduce it so that it doesn't take, you know, a crew of 300 people, 200 or 300 people to make an animated film? How do you change that process that it doesn't take, you know, 18 months to 30 months to run, you know, to do physical production for right. animation? And so I think, you know, you know, in film, it's about materials and labor, right? Sure. In animation, it's pretty much labor is the, the most, the major component of the cost. Sure. So if you can do it with a smaller crew, go faster without compromising quality, yeah. then you're going to give more opportunities right. for more, more content creation. But it was, I mean, even back in, you know, the, the you know, late 90s or whatever, it was expensive to hire an, an animator. You know, you, mm -hmm. it was $50,000 for an SGI, $50,000 for Maya, yeah. and plus another 100000 100, yeah. for it. So you're basically looking at $200,000 per seat. Yeah. 
you know? And yep. so it was very expensive. I mean, has that changed? Are we asking to get animators for less money or are we basically... No, the good news is now, yeah. right? Which I love is that I think, you know, companies like um, Unity, um, Epic, you know, groups like Blender. Sure. They've democratized software. Sure. You can download it. Yeah. Go do your thing, right? Yep. Um, you can now, you know, use a small box. You don't need to spend fifty thousand dollars to buy a piece of hardware. Sure. You've got the cloud to render, you know. Yeah. And all you need is really a, you know, a pretty solid um, workstation. Yeah. You know, that's what thirty-five hundred bucks, five thousand dollars. You know, it's right. not fifty grand. And um, you know, the labor cost isn't any lower. Um, but you know, there's a big thing called tax incentives. Yeah. That you know, <laughs> pay for a lot of this content today. Yeah. So it's it's I think we're starting to democratize. I do I do remember, you know, around two thousand six when not not real time rendering, but in offline rendering when finally we started to move away from rasterized rendering to yes. ray tracing. Right. And then suddenly it used to be now would budget people to work on mm -hmm. a show used to have to budget about 25 shots per person mm -hmm. to be a lighter, right? Mm -hmm. And then when Ray Tracy came along and he didn't have to fake everything, then yeah. suddenly you can do 150 shots per artist. <laughs> well, depending on how much time you're giving them, but yeah. yeah. Because yeah. it was much easier. It was yeah. much more logical and physical based. So yeah. it was kind yeah. of an interesting thing. So yeah. I'm wondering if like, you know, those types of advances are the ones that are going to sort of help democratize. Definitely. Them. I mean, yeah. you, you know, we're starting to see, um, I'm not as familiar as I'm, um, uh, with Unity as I am with Unreal, but I mean, you know, it's real-time rendering, you know, and sure. now um, it's pretty photoreal, but, um, you know, I've seen work, samples of work where, you know, they're starting to, you know, um, create non-photoreal shaders and sure. looks, you know, and what you can do with that is, you know, pretty phenomenal. Yeah, I agree. I just think it needs to be ray traced. <laughs> In real time, which it can be. Yeah, it can be. It yeah, can it can be. be. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it can be. Uh, so that's interesting. Okay, now I'm going to talk a little bit about how animation as a as a as a medium uh -huh. has changed, and and how you know I did mention I did call it a genre by mistake, mm -hmm. but I do think there's some ideas of what the different genres that have taken on animation mm -hmm. has changed over the years, especially in the last few years. Yeah. So what are your thoughts about how, how people perceive animation? So if you're in North America, uh -huh. the way you perceive animation is, I think, very different from how you perceive animation in the rest of the world. Right. Because in North America, if you're especially looking at the film level, um, um, and I'm not an expert in this, the TV space, I can't really talk about the TV space, but sure. when you look at the theatrical space, the people that have produced animation, animated feature content are these temple studios, right? Right. You got Disney, you got Pixar, you got DreamWorks, you got, you had Blue Sky, you know, mm -hmm. you have Sony. So because of how much money it takes to make these movies, these temple movies are all four quadrant and usually very comedy based. Right. So this is why I think it's easy, very easy for Hollywood to say animation is a genre because that is that is one type of movie, right? Sure. But if you look outside of North America, right? You look at Japan, for example. Look at anime, right. and how anime has all kinds of genres. You know, you can have 
horror, you can have comedy, you can have drama, you can have, you know, A to Z, right? Right. And I think, um, I think the power anime and its influence has been huge last, I would say the last five years, you know? Yep. If I talk to anybody in the U.S. about anime, you know, 10 years ago, they, they would go, that's just fringe, you know? And I go, yeah. it's not fringe. But that's, that was the perception. Right. But anime has really influenced South America, Europe, you know, the Middle East. And so, you know, and so I think that's a huge change. Sure. And then I think, you know, in Europe and Canada, I mean, there's so much um, subsidies that's allowed um, filmmakers to make all kinds of films. You know, some of the most some of the most exciting things I I see today are things that are coming out of Europe. You know, some of these um, profound films and shorts. You know, they're not afraid to touch different genres. And one exciting genre for me is doc animation. Dark animation. Doc document documentary animation, right? Okay. So, for example, um, the movie Flea. Right. Right. That was nominated in multiple categories yep unfortunately it didn't win but it was recognized sure as for best animated feature best um documentary feature and best form right right and a movie like flea you're taking something very you're taking a very difficult subject matter but by removing it from doing live action and putting into the animation medium sure you're able to really tell these difficult stories. Explain to the audience mm-hmm. what Flea is about so they have an idea. <laughs> okay, so Flea is a story about um, um, about a um, homosexual man mm-hmm. that um, that ex- escapes from Af- Afghanistan. Sure. And it's his journey of basically ending up in... Um, Denmark and it's his trials and tribulations and you know he didn't want to tell the story because he doesn't want to disclose who he is right and the filmmaker that wanted to tell the story um, you know was his very close friend and the only way that he would agree to tell the story was to make sure that he is um, he was never disclosed right so you're telling an important story that should be shared. Right. Because it's a humanitarian story. Yep. From all aspects, right? It, 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 there's an intersection of, of refugees, sexuality, you know, um, political asylum. I mean, there's, there's so much intersectionality. And um, it's an important film, but to do that in live action, first of all, he didn't want to disclose himself, so sure. that couldn't have been done. done. No. And also telling stories that weren't necessarily filmed. like Right, <laughs> because you can't really film it. Right, you know, right. right, yeah, yeah. So I think, I think, I think documentary, animated documentaries, I think is a game changer. Yeah. Because now we're being able to tell stories that we couldn't before. You know, a couple sure. years ago, there was a short, I can't remember the name of the short, um, but it was about sex, uh, it was about sex trafficking. Oh, yeah. Another very difficult subject matter to, to tell, right? Right. And this filmmaker 
got women from different parts of the world talking about their their um, pain mm -hmm. and and their experience of being sexually trafficked. But again, you can't film that. Right. You can't disclose who they are. So animation is a medium that allows you yeah. to share these difficult stories and um, help audience understand that there's a lot of bad stuff that goes out there. Yeah. And, you know, you want to inform people. So I really think, you know, um, animation is profound when you can use it that way as well. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I actually did a did a, a, a podcast with uh, Bill Plimpton. Yeah. And he he's talking about how he's been doing a lot of animation to fill in the gaps of things, right. stories that haven't been able to be filmed, but have that visual story that goes with right. it. Right. Yeah. So I think I think those things are really important. Sure. And now that um, our tools are accessible, right, and right. affordable. Sure. That you know these um, stories that we haven't told before are being told. Yeah. So, um, I I think it's, it's it's good for it's it's very good. Yeah. All around, you know, for everyone. What about what about the idea of animations? You know, it used to be four quadrant in a lot of ways, mm -hmm. and now with uh, uh, streaming, seems to be mm -hmm. so much more open to quote unquote niche genres, right? Uh -huh. Animations like Love, Death, and Robots and things yeah. of that nature. What do you think about that and how that's going to change? Look, well. the more we can open yeah. um, animation and really treat it as a medium and to have different types of content, I think it's just super exciting. Yeah. Because again, you know, it, animation isn't, isn't cartoon for kids. I mean, it's, it's really a, a very, very powerful medium. I mean, you know, look back what, what Walt Disney did back in, you know, during World War II when he made propaganda films, you know, <laughs> and he was hired by different governments to make shorts. That right. was, that were all propaganda, right? Sure. So, um, you know, I love the fact that, you know, the streamers have now, you know, created this platform. Right. Where they, they want so much content and they're open to different genres because their job is to get people to watch, you know? And the more variety they you give them, you know, the higher chance they're going to continue to watch that platform. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's exciting. I think it's an exciting world, and I just love the fact that you've, you know, been passionate about it since way back when, yeah. and sort of got you into to, to doing that. Are you happy with the journey that you've taken? Are you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, I mean, we we all have life lessons about you know, oh, should have done that. You know, should have done this that way. Right. You know, but you know, we, we all have our journey, and um, yeah, I'm happy where I am. You know, and and I want to make more stuff, and you know make more movies and make, and I'm looking really now in the series space as well, because the series space has really opened up to different types of genres more than the feature space. Right. And I want to work with, you know, um, emerging talent. And also what's important to me is really um, working with diverse talent so that we can tell stories that we haven't told before. Right. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much. You're welcome. Okay. Thanks great. so much. Yeah.